Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Okay, I'd like to welcome everyone out to our Tuesday evening study entitled Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuva, the Harvest, in Thornton, Colorado. Um, I'd like to invite you all out every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Um, we meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, and we are on week... Let's take a look... We are in week 18, and so we're nearing the end of our second semester, in which we'll take a break for two weeks so you can get a chance to catch up, and then we'll start again with a, a third semester. We'll just keep going through the notes, uh, the commentary that I wrote, until we finish. So, Lord willing, it, I don't know how long that'll take. Could be months, could be years. But I'm in no hurry if you're in no hurry. Let's open with a word of prayer. And then I'll read some liturgy, a uh, passage out of the Tanakh, Old Testament, and a passage out of the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament. And then we'll get started with the study, okay? Let's pray. Avinu, Malkenu, our Father, our King, Lord, we are excited about meeting with you tonight. We thank you that you have sent your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, in our midst. We know, Lord, that you have promised via your Son, Yeshua, that you would be with us. In fact, your son said it best, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we believe, Yeshua, that you are here with us tonight. We ask that you would send forth your spirit to drive out the darkness and bring your light, bring clarity to the topic, bring your truth, and let it sink deep within our souls so that we can um, learn of you and know of you and uh, clothe ourselves with Messiah. We thank you for the opportunity to study with one another, to lift up one another in prayer, and and to admonish one another, and to um, just to love on one another via this uh, medium called internet. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to sit before the students week by week and share what you have laid on my heart with the students. I pray that you'll continue to um, uh, allow me to press in closer so that I can... Um, be, be responsible for what I'm teaching so that I can um, be a, 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 a teacher of Torah and be able to um, share words of truth and words that are relevant for our lives and help us to be able to make practical application. Uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise, Father, for it is in Yeshua's name that we recognize all of these things. Amen. Okay, let's date stamp the recording. Today is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2016. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we're in week number 
18. We're just chugging right along. Um, Schedule-wise, we, we were moving through the commentary, which has grown in leaps and bounds. Um, I've just been a busy beaver lately. Um, it started out really as 122 pages and already it's at 150 pages. And I feel the need to keep adding things here and there because I talk a lot in the commentary, or uh, talk a lot during the teaching, but I don't always read from the commentary. And so I decided to take a lot of what I wanted to say and throw it back into the commentary. This way, if I actually stick to the notes, which I'm going to try and do, if I actually stick to the notes, then I'll actually uh, get across what I'm trying to convey to the students. Let me read a little bit of liturgy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the liturgy like I have been doing lately. I'm going to try to accelerate some of the liturgy so that I'm not taking all of my time on the liturgy, but actually spending more time for the notes. Um, the liturgy I want to use is the one we've been using recently, which is the passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, I've been reading a part of the Shema. Um, I'm just going to single out Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and then I'm going to jump down and pick up the reading at verse 16 and finish out the end of the chapter for us. Um, I'm sorry, not verse 16. I'm actually going to start in verse 20 and read through verse 25 after I read through the Shema. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons I'm reading this passage is because of its relevance for Jews, both Messianic and non, as well as Christians, I believe, but also because of the way that Moshe describes our relationship to the Torah and how it seems to not quite... <clears throat> Not quite line up with the way that traditional Christianity views the Torah. And as you all know, it is my aim to introduce Torah observance, at least the ceremonial parts, to many Christians who may not may not otherwise have a chance to hear this type of teaching. So, Deuteronomy 6 from the ESV, let's start in verse 4. These are familiar verses for those of you who are, um, who are members of a Messianic congregation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And let me jump down to verse 20 and finish out the chapter. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then she'll say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And the last verse, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Amen. Let's jump over to some Hebrew. I'm not going to, um, I don't have the Hebrew pulled up of the uh, Shema versus Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, but I actually have it committed to memory, so for those of you who are in the live class with me, just permit me, I'll just quote that from memory, and then I'll, as you look on your screen, you'll see I've got verse 20 pulled up in the Hebrew, but let me um, rattle off uh, verses 4-9 through nine for you real quick. Um, Shema Yisrael Adonai lo heinu Adonai echad, v'achavta et Adonai lo hecha b'kolovachol v'kol nafshchol v'kol ma'odaka, v'hayu hadirim ha'ele asher anuchi matzavcha hayom al levavecha, 
Vashinantam le Vaneka with the Barata Bambishiv the Kapibetako of Lechtaka Vaderak of Shakhaka of Kumeka Uk Sharatam le Ot al Yadaka Vahayu Le Totafot Bain Enecha Uktavtam al Mezuzot Betaka Uvish Araka. Of course, you're asking, how can I memorize all of that? Well, it's because we read it every day, twice a day at least, during the Shacharit prayers and the Ma'arif prayers, or the Minka prayers, however you uh, pray the set time prayers during the week, which I do, um, during the day. So, let's jump now, uh, if you're in this uh, live class with me, um, you'll see I've got the Hebrew pulled up to Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And I'll read down through those verses as well. And then we'll jump over into our New Testament passage, okay? Starting in verse 20, it reads, Ki yishal chavin chamachar le'moron ma ha'idot v'hachukim v'hamishpatim asher tziva Adonai lochinu etchem v'amarata levin avadim chayinu lefaro b'mitzraim v'yotzienu Adonai mimitzraim b'yad chazaka Let me scroll down a bit here. Right, uh, starting in verse 22. Um, and verse 24 and 25. Verse 24 says, uh, and verse 25 reads, Alright, that's our Hebrew. Let's jump over into some New Testament and Greek. And this is the passage I've been picking on for the last few weeks because of its relevance to the section that we're in, which is section 3. Uh, works of Law, Part 1, uh, Prosite Conversion, Understanding the Background. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 6, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through, I'm just going to read 1 through 5, even though on your screen you've got 1 through 6. Um, let's read this out of the ESV. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Just as, and I'll stop there. Uh, I know the ASV uh, continues with one more verse because of the um, the way the, I guess the paragraph breaks, but I don't want to read that verse, um, verse 6. I just want to stop there at verse 5. Let's jump over into the Greek and read that same, uh, those same six, four or five verses or so. Uh, the Greek reads, O anoitoi, I'm sorry, anaitoi, 
Galatai tis humas baskanen. Te alethia me petestai huis cat ophthalmus. Jesus Christas pro egrafe estarumenas, estarumenas. Verse 2. Uh, tuta manan thelo, mathen af human ex ergonamu to penuma elabate, e ex aques bistios. These are questions Paul's asking. Uh, starting in verse 3. Hutos anatoi este in axemanoi, penumati nun sarki epataleste. And let's jump down to verse 4. Dosauta epate. Epate, I'm sorry, epatete, eke aige kai eke, ho un epokogorian, epokoregon, human topnuma kai energon, dunamis, dunamis in human ex ergon, namu e ex aquis pistios. And that'll be our Greek for this evening. And as I mentioned, I chose these passages because of the wording. We've got our familiar phrase works of law or works of the law showing up in this passage, which, um, let me pull up the pointer, in the Greek, works of law is right over here. You can actually see it if I put the pointer underneath the um, red lettering where it says works in English. Works of law is the Greek ergon namu, and this fra this word right here, uh, namu, is rooted in the, the Greek word namos, which is the familiar Greek word for law. And so now let's jump over to our study and what I will do is I'm going to read as much as I can, and then I'm going to stop a little bit early because, as I mentioned earlier, I would like to try and exegete a passage out of, the, out, of, out of Paul's writings that uses these phrases, works of law, and see if the meaning that I'm giving works of law actually fits with the context of what Paul's talking about, or if it seems like I'm forcing the fit. And I get this question quite a bit, not, not least of all from the students who join me during my studies, but also from people who write in quite a bit. And the reason I get this question is because the traditional, conventional understanding of works of law is that Paul is um, discouraging a meritorious use of Torah in the sense of you just kind of simplistically keep it like a grocery list, you know, like you've got a list in your hand, one through ten, and you kind of check them off as you do them. And if you finish all of them, then supposedly God will reward you with some type of merit or righteousness or salvation or a place in the age to come, something like that. And so Christianity basically interprets works of the law as doing the Torah or doing the commandments, particularly the ceremonial parts like keeping the Sabbath and keeping kosher and uh, keeping the festivals. As you all know, I'm a Messianic Jewish man. I'm a Jew. But I believe in Jesus, therefore that makes me a Messianic Jew. And as I read through the Bible, I don't find the um, I don't find the warrant for for dismissing Torah the way Christianity says it's been dismissed. In other words, it's no secret that Christianity teaches that the Torah has been relaxed in Jesus, that it's been done away with by the by the work of Christ, and that Paul teaches that since we're no longer under the works of the law, or no longer under the law. Christianity takes these two phrases, works of the law and under the law, and kind of um, combines them. And so because Paul has nothing good to say about the works of the law, and he specifically says in Romans 6, 15, that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, then Christianity interprets 
works of law as doing the law and under the law as under obligation to the law, and therefore their application, their conclusion to Paul's writings is that we don't have to keep the Torah anymore. We don't have to concern ourselves with these things. But I find that position to be unworkable, untenable, unscriptural. And to be sure, it does not agree with the rest of the Tanakh. I don't believe that Paul jettisoned Torah. I believe he was a lifelong Torah keeper, as was Yeshua. So we're going to start reading through this commentary. And my one of my primary thesis, uh, primary positions to my um, teachings when I wrote this commentary is that I'm trying to challenge your average Christian theologian or Christian Bible reader with this idea that Paul didn't write the book of Galatians in order to warn Christians away from keeping the Torah. He, in fact, wrote the book of Galatians to warn people away from this unique kind of legalism that plagued the first century Judaisms of his day. And the, 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 the legalism that I believe that Paul would have disagreed with was not a legalistic keeping of Torah per se, Rather, it was a legalistic use of their identity as Jewish people within the covenants spelled out between Abraham and Moses. So that's where I'm going to get the most mileage out of my commentary. So let's start reading through this commentary. We're in section 3, and it's entitled Works of Law, Part 1, Proselyte Conversion, Understanding the Background. As a segue from the previous sections... The reason we are focusing on works of law and the reason I've got proselyte conversion in the title is because I believe that by the first century, the Judaisms of Paul's day had firmly entrenched themselves in a social religious grouping, and they believed that essentially that the covenant made with Abraham spoke only to Jewish Israel, and therefore if a person from the outside wished to join the people group known as Israel, known as Jewish Israel to them, then the person on the outside, read here as a Gentile, had to pass through a conversion ceremony known as the proselyte conversion ceremony, which was entirely man-made, and they would come out the other end as a legal recognized Jew, a legally standing Jew. And once their Jewish status was conferred upon them from a legal perspective, then the covenants of Moshe were handed to them. So this really becomes a huge issue for Paul, and it should be a huge issue for us today in 21st century Messianic Judaism as well as um, mainstream Christianity. And why is this a big issue? Because not only do I believe is the Torah relevant for both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, but a lot is at stake here. If, if the Jewish people were, were correct in saying that the Torah is for Jews only, then in essence what the Jewish people were saying is that the covenant with Abraham is for Jews only. You see my point? The passage that we read in Genesis 17 where God tells Abraham that all of your males will be circumcised and that this is a sign of the covenant between me and you, speaking of physical circumcision, if, cir if the Torah is for Jews only and circumcision is what turns you into a Jew, then in essence, the Jewish people were of, of Paul's day firmly believed that circumcision and the covenant of circumcision and the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was essentially a Jewish marker, and that, in a word, the Abrahamic covenant was for Jews only. Now, we're going to read here in Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, if I get to it in time, we're going to find out that Paul would disagree sharply 
with anyone that would presuppose that the Abrahamic covenant is for Jews only. No, 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 Paul's going to say. The Abrahamic covenant is for all those who exercise the same faith that Abraham had. And therefore, if you have the same faith as Abraham, you will be counted as righteous, just like Abraham was, Genesis 15, 6. And the faith that Paul is going to objectively describe is faith in Messiah. Therefore, Gentiles can call Abraham their father. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that's where I'm going with this. That's what's at stake here, people. When we read through the book of Galatians, and we've been taught that the Torah is for Jews only, well, then that basically buys into the mistaken theology that the Abrahamic covenant is for Jews only as well. And we as Christians know that that's wrong. So why can't we see that it's also incorrect to say that the Torah is for Jews only, right? So let's let's start reading about these works of law. In, in my um, dealings with um, reading through the text and dialoguing with many Christian friends, family members, pastors, etc., I find that the position that teaches that the Torah has been done away with and that the Torah is for Jews only, this is the standard Christian position, largely finds its um, largely finds its roots in Paul's phrase works of the law and a an interpretation and an application of that phrase. And that's why I'm going to pick on this phrase for the next two sections in my commentary. Section 3 and section 4 both are works of the law, part 1 and part 2, respectively. So we're going to spend a lot of time on this phrase, works of the law. And what I hope to begin to show you as Bible students is that this phrase, works of the law, is a technical phrase. It's a social-religious phrase. It doesn't merely mean trying to keep the Torah for the purpose of gaining membership. In fact, Jewish people in Paul's day didn't try to keep the Torah to become covenant members. They actually thought they were covenant members because they were Jewish at birth, or they converted and became proselytes. So let's start reading, see how far I can get, and then at about, say, 10 minutes uh, before I end the study, then I'll take a little bit of time and start turning to the scriptures and see if we can fit my hermeneutic back into the scriptures and see if I'm um, getting the, uh, the sense of the context. All right, let's read. Uh, by the way, before I start reading, those of you who are not with me in the live class but are listening to this um, audio recording after the fact, whether you've downloaded the podcast on iTunes or something like that, you've subscribed to the podcast, you can find my commentary online. Go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H, tetzetorah.com. Right on the homepage, there's a global navigation section at the top. Uh, click on the link that says Galatians Commentary, and then just start scrolling down, and you'll find the link so that you can um, either view or download the PDF document, which, as I mentioned, now has grown by 25 pages since the last time we met, since I've been busily writing this week. Or you can just click on the online version and follow along uh, uh, section by section. All right. Let me get this uh, pointer out of the way. All right. Uh, section 3, Works of Law, Part 1, Prosite Conversion, Understanding the Background. We're on page 17 for those of you who do have the commentary printed out or you're looking at it online. In this section, I will begin to demonstrate how our discussion about circumcision in the first two sections of this commentary and Shaul's phrase, works of the law, alternately works of law without the uh, article there, actually work in tandem with one another. My understanding of the phrase, works of the law, in conjunction with my convictions about the relevance of Torah, 
in the lives of Jewish and Gentile Christians occupies a central place in my interpretation and application of the book of Galatians. These next three sections on works of the law and proselyte conversion, covenantal nomism and justification, will therefore occupy much longer than other, I'm sorry, will therefore appear much longer than other topical sections to my commentary. Let's keep reading. Sorry about that. Here we go. We're starting in this paragraph. The book of Galatians contains a few technical terms and phrases that make it a bit more difficult for the average Bible student to understand from a casual reading perspective. I believe the term circumcision is one of those terms since it functioned as a metonym for Jewish identity. I also believe works of the law is a technical phrase in Paul. To be sure, a best practices hermeneutic will seek to uncover the historical, grammatical, social, religious, and linguistic contexts of the passages in question before attempting to apply a practical application. Let me pause and interject. Much of what we're reading, if you've already been attending the live classes, um, you'll notice a few weeks back we already started reading this. But I promise you, because I have revised it, a lot of this is going to be new. In fact, better than 80% of it is new. So um, just uh, listen along and follow along because a lot of it, like I mentioned, is, is new material. Stuff I want to convey to the students. But I wanted to pause real quick and just uh, remind us that this phrase circumcision, uh, you can read through the Bible and you already are familiar with the fact that the word circumcision and the word circumcised stand as uh, kind of um, uh, stand in words or a metonym or uh, circumlocutions for Jewish identity or Jewishness or Jewish people. Paul was sent to the uncircumcised. Peter was sent to the circumcised. What is Paul saying in Galatians chapter 1 there? He's saying that Paul was sent to the Gentiles. That's why he calls them uh, the uncircumcised. And that Peter was sent to the circumcised, i.e. sent to the Jews. So we know that much from reading our Bibles. But what we may not know is that the Jewish people had begun interpreting the phrase circumcision not only as Jewish identity, but Jewish exclusively. Jewish Israel. And that if someone wanted to join is Jewish Israel, then they had to take on circumcision. And therefore, in, in the, the Judaisms of Paul's day, circumcision took on not just a... It, it went from being just this um, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant to the sign of being a Jew. And that's where we're going to get a lot of discussion. So let's keep reading. Uh, we're in this paragraph here. It's no secret that God commanded Israel to circumcise both their native-born male children as well as foreigners who joined the family clan way back in Genesis 17, 9-14, and repeated again briefly in Leviticus 12, 1-3. Equally true is the fact that in the Genesis narrative with Dina and the sons of Shechem that forced circumcision for the purpose of inclusion into the existing community of Israel is portrayed. And let's read this passage here real quick. Genesis 34, 13 through 17, out of the ESV, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. So what I'm, the reason I brought this verse out is because we're beginning to see that in the narrative that the Jewish people, or the sons of Israel, I really shouldn't call them the Jewish people there, the sons of Israel 
um, were imposing forced circumcision on these non-Israelites. And here's what I'm trying to say, and you got to listen carefully or you're going to miss this, all right? Every Jewish person is, in fact, an Israelite. However, every Israelite is not a Jewish person. Did you guys catch what I'm trying to say? Did you follow me? Did I lose anyone? Every Jew is an Israelite, but not every Israelite is a Jew. And so in the, in the text of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament, we need to be very, very careful as Bible students when we're reading through our Bibles, especially the Old Testament parts, like I just read here in Genesis. When we read about circumcision, we need to understand that circumcision was not primarily given to mark a person out as a Jew. Remember, by Paul's day, it had developed into that meaning. But originally, God said in Genesis 17 that it is the sign of the covenant. He didn't say it's the sign of being Jewish, right? If God had said that, that the circumcision is the sign of being Jewish, then truly the Abrahamic covenant, with its attendant circumcision being the sign, truly then the Abrahamic covenant would be exclusively for Jews. But it is not. And I want to say that in point of fact, and I want to... I want to be very adamant about that point. The, the uh, circumcision is not for Jews only. So otherwise, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's keep reading. We may note also that according to the Exodus narratives, if a foreigner wished to eat of the commemorative Passover meal, later clarified in Second Temple Judaism to pertain exclusively to the specific meal that was eaten in Jerusalem using lamb slaughtered in the temple, that this person, this foreigner, was required to take on circumcision so as to be counted as a quote-unquote native of the land. Let's read the passage here. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. End quote. That's Exodus 12, 43 through 49, rendered out of the ESV. So you're beginning to see again, in the narrative, if you're not careful to watch what you're reading, you'll fall into the trap, and I call it a trap, that when you, God says that foreigners who want to eat the Pesach sacrificial meal, the one that, of the, the, in other words, the meat from the sacrificed lamb, God commands uh, the foreigners the males to be circumcised. And if you're not careful when you're reading the text, you'll come to the incorrect, incorrect conclusion that what God is actually commanding the foreigners to do is to convert and become Jews. But that's not what God is commanding. Read the text again. God is commanding the foreigners to become circumcised, but that's it. What do they end up with? What what do they become after they become foreign? What what are they after they become foreigner circumcised? They're simply circumcised foreigners. They aren't Jews, is the point I'm trying to make. Now, the, 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 the teachers in Paul's day, and to be sure, the rabbis of today, we're going to see this here in a moment, they believe that because circumcision is exclusively a Jewish marker, then 
the foreigners in this passage are actually converting. And I'm going to make that point here in the next paragraph. Let's keep reading. In point of fact, the texts that mention Gentile circumcision do not explicitly teach that Gentiles referenced are actually converting to become Jews by taking on circumcision. However, by the first century, Israel operating under the false security that their covenant status was secured by their ethnic status abused this fundamental commandment by identifying their males as well as any Gentiles who joined Israel exclusively as circumcised Jews. Let me pause and interject. There are two lines of logic that are being presented by the Judaisms of Paul's day and by the Judaisms of today. And unfortunately, this line of logic is being accepted by the church. And here's what it is. Lesson or let a logic one, because a circumcised person becomes a Jew, then circumcision is the marker of Jewish identity and the Abrahamic covenant is for Jews only. That's logic step one, which leads to logic step two, because the Torah was given to Israel only, and because Israel is a Jewish only or a Jewish exclusive uh, ent entity, then the Torah is for Jews only. And so you see, that's their line of logic that was being played out by both the Judaisms of Paul's day, and it's still acceptable in today's Judaism. Basically, the Jews today feel that they are the exclusive covenant members um, of the Abrahamic covenant, and therefore, if, if someone wants to join the Abrahamic covenant by taking on circumcision, then he basically converts, becomes a Jew, and then the Torah is given to him. In other words, um, the Torah is not applicable to Gentiles, which... Isn't this funny, tongue-in-cheek? Isn't that what the Christian church says? No, the Torah's not for us. We don't need the Torah because it's for Jews only. It was given to Israel only. Um, blah, blah, blah. And so we're going we're gonna to follow that line of reasoning because Paul is... This is really one of the central, um, the central tenets of Paul's thesis in his letters, particularly the book of Galatians. Paul has to uproot this mistaken notion that that the Abrahamic covenant is for Jews only, and that therefore the Torah is for Jews only. And the reason Paul has to uproot this bad theology is because the gospel is rooted in the Abrahamic covenant. Do you understand? So if the Abrahamic covenant is for Jews only, then salvation is for the Jews only. You see my point? And of course we know that salvation is not for Jews only, but if salvation were for the Jews only, then what about the hapless Gentiles? Well, well, then the only way for salvation to extend to them is for them to become Jews as well. And that is exactly Paul's consternation. The Torah is not for, I'm sorry, circumcision is not for Jews only. Salvation is not for Jews only. The Torah is not for Jews only. Therefore, the Gentiles are included into the people group of God, and it's via faith. That is Paul's central point. And so that's why we have to go through this lessons of um, circumcision and works of law. So let's keep reading. I'm in the middle of my paragraph. I'm probably around here where the, my little arrow is for those of you who are in my class, live class. Even the modern stone edition Tanakh translation of the Old Testament published by Art Scroll, an exclusively non-Messianic Jewish publication, interprets these instance, those instances where Gentiles take on circumcision as if the Gentiles have become proselytes to Judaism. 
And I didn't bring in any quotes from the uh, Art Scroll edition. I have a copy sitting right here. I'm looking at it. It's on my shelf here. But those of you who have a copy of the online, I'm, I'm sorry, have a copy of the Art Scroll edition Tanakh, which is very a, a good version, by the way. It's got the Hebrew on the left side of the on the right side of the page, and it's got the English on the left side of the page. But if you turn to these passages where it mentions the foreigner, such as the one I just have that I just mentioned about Exodus 12, you'll see that the word foreigner there is substituted for the word proselyte. So it's interesting. Let's keep reading in my uh, commentary here. Uh, observe this lengthy quote from this online copy of the Talmud. And I'm going to pull a quote here from Tractate Yevamot, folios 47a and b, 47, 47a and 47b. And we're going to see where the Gentile proselyte enters the mikvah, the baptismal waters, as a foreigner, quote-unquote, but he comes out as a Jew, quote-unquote. This is going to be an interesting quote, because I bet you many Christians have never seen this quote before. Why? Because most Christians don't inter don't concern themselves with um, referencing the Talmud because they feel it's more or less um, unbelieving rabbinic works and it's not worth study. But in my experience as a Messianic Jew, even though it is true that it is written by unbelieving Jews, there's a lot of historical content, sociological content in there that would be beneficial for us to help help us in understanding the social background behind the first century Judaisms, particularly the background, the religious background behind the um, the people of the first century, the, the New Testament. And so this is going to begin to help us form the framework for understanding how Paul's phrase, works of the law, is a technical term. It can't simply mean do the Torah so that you can be saved or do the Torah so that you can become righteous. Because if it were, then why all the unnecessary proselyte conversion package, right? Why all that language anyway? If works of law simply means do the Torah, well then why do we even need to talk about circumcision? I'm getting ahead of myself again. We're going to get to that in a moment. Let's read this lengthy quote from the Talmud, right? I like to use online resources sometimes because anyone can get to them. So I'm going to read this lengthy quote, and then uh, you'll see in the footnote uh, number five, that this is pulled from the online version of the Talmud, which anyone can get at. By the way, those of you who are subscribed to my live uh, exegeting Galatians classes that we're conducting right now, those of you who are subscribers do receive the written notes, and all of this that I'm reading is in your written notes. So if you're saying, Ariel, go a little slower so I can write down that uh, footnote reference so I can go back and look up the online Talmud myself, uh, no need to. If you've already subscribed, then this is in your email. Just go look at the email for the um, online notes that I provide every week. Okay, let's read this passage. This is from the Talmud. This was originally written in, um, I believe it was either Hebrew, it might have been Aramaic, but it's been translated to English for us. Okay, let's read this quote. Our rabbis taught, if at the present time a man desires to become a proselyte, he is to be addressed as follows. What reason have you for desiring to become a proselyte? Do you not know that Israel at the present time are persecuted and oppressed, despised, harassed, and overcome with, by afflictions? If he replies, I know, and yet am unworthy, he is accepted forthwith and is given instructions in some of the minor and some of the major commandments. He is informed of the sin, of the neglect of the commandments, of gleanings, the forgotten sheaf, the corner, and the poor man's tithe. He is also told of the punishment for the transgressions the transgression of the commandments. Furthermore, he is addressed thus, Be it known to you that before you came to this condition, that is, before he took the steps to become a proselyte Jew, if you, have eat, if you had eaten suet, which is pork, if you'd eaten suet, 
you would not have been punishable with karet, which karet is being cut off from the community of Israel. If you had profaned the Sabbath, you would not have been punishable with stoning. But now, were you to eat suet, that is pork, you would be punished with karet, kareth it says, which is um, being put out of the community of Israel, excommunication basically. Were you to profane the Sabbath, you would be punished with stoning. And as he is informed of the punishment for the transgressions of the commandments, so he is informed of the reward granted for their fulfillment. He is told, be it known to you that the world to come was made only for the righteous, and that Israel at the present time are unable to bear either too much prosperity or too much suffering. He is not, however, to be persuaded or dissuaded too much. If he, if he accepted, that is, he accepts these, this yoke of the Torah that the rabbis are placing on him, this this list of do's and don'ts, this, this starter membership package, as it were. If he accepted, he is circumcised forthwith. Should any shreds which render the circumcision invalid remain, he is to be circumcised a second time. As soon as he is healed, arrangements are made for his immediate ablution, which is the uh, preparation of going down into the, the baptismal tank, the, the mikvah waters. That's what ablution means. When two learned men must stand by his side on either side of the, the, the water and acquaint him with some of the minor commandments and some of the major ones. Watch this last sentence. When he comes up after his ablution, he is deemed to be an Israelite in all respects. End quote. All right. Are you guys beginning to see it here? This is just one quote. Are you guys beginning to see that basically the sentiments of the Judaisms of Paul's day were that Israel was a Jewish-only set? There's another quote from Tractate Sanhedrin 10.1 that I'm going to bring into my commentary in a bit. But in essence, the ancient rabbis of Paul's day, the teachers of Paul's day, were pushing a view that Israel was a Jewish-only identity, a Jewish-only people group and that their ethnicity was secured by their circumcision, their identity as circumcised people. And so, the proselytes who were approaching the people group of God and wanted to, to join in the blessings and the rewards that, that, excuse me, that the Torah spelled out, they were being forced to undergo the ceremony of the proselyte because according to the Jewish leaders of Paul's day, the Torah was an exclusively Jewish document, and therefore the promises that God spelled out and the rewards that God um, spelled out for keeping the Torah were exclusively for Jewish people. And therefore the Gentiles were forbidden from keeping the Torah. The, the Gentiles were forbidden from enjoying the promises. And of course, we know that the promises include blessings in this age and blessings in the age to come. In a word to use Christian verbiage, the blessings included salvation. And therefore, the Jewish people were essentially, they had essentially hijacked salvation and were keeping it to themselves. And so for that reason, Paul is going to have to come along and teach his Galatian Christians that no, 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 if you want to be counted among the righteous in Israel, if you want to become a member of Israel, if you want to enjoy the blessings of the Torah like Israel enjoys, then all you need to do is place your faith in Messiah and then continue to walk by the Spirit, which means avail yourselves of the truths of Torah because God doesn't bless wickedness. So you need to turn from idolatry, true. You need to turn unto the living God, true. 
You need to cast your faith on the object of faith, which is Yeshua the Messiah. You need to uh, appropriate His Holy Spirit within you, allow His words to sink down in you, and then you need to begin to walk by the Spirit and put to deeds the uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh. These are the instructions that Paul's going to give to his Gentile readers. And so Paul's going to warn them that if you accept proselyte conversion, read here as either circumcision or works of the law, if you accept that as your means of gaining righteousness in Israel, then you are going to circumvent the genuine object of faith, which is the Messiah. So, um, let me look at my commentary. You'll see that the footnote to number five is uh, that online source that uh, comeinhere.com. And so I think what I'll do is, for those of you who are in the live class, I'm going to pause here in the commentary. We'll stop at page, let's see, where do we stop? Sorry about that. Um, we're going to stop at page 19. And this is where we're going to pick up the reading next week. But what I want to do for you is, because many of you, have asked me, Ariel, now that you believe that works of the law, now that you're trying to teach us that works of the law and Paul doesn't necessarily mean works done in obedience to Torah, but, but actually captures the idea of works done as an existing Jewish covenant member for the sake of maintaining our position as Jews, or works done in order to bring us into the covenant as Gentiles through the proselyte ceremony, and you're, and you're saying, gosh, that is a mouthful when you read the phrase works of the law. How do you get all that out of works of the law? What I want to do for you is I want to actually start exegeting some passages out of the apostolic scriptures and see if my meaning, my understanding of works of the law fits. So for the next, say, 15 minutes or so, I'm going to start looking at, say, Romans chapter 2. Now, uh, Galatians was written probably in the middle 50s, say, about 55 A.D., it's one of Paul's earlier letters. The book of Romans actually came along about two, three years later, so 57, 58, something like that. And so basically, the way I understand it is Galatians is so short, it's so terse, and it was probably written prior to the council, the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, that Paul is basically writing on the fly in, in, Galatians, in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is, is as I say, it essentially a letter written to put out a fire that had already started, right? It's kind of like the firemen who arrive at the house and the fire is already going and they they you know they pull up in their fire trucks and the fire is already going so they're they're doing their best to put out the fire that's already going. It's already burning. That's essentially the book of Galatians. Paul's writing after the incident of the influencers, the agitators, the Judaizers is what many people call them. Those people that showed up they actually snuck in, according to uh, the book of Galatians. They snuck in unawares, and they were essentially upsetting the, Gentile, the Galatian Gentiles with this nonsense about um, uh, the uh, forced proselyte conversion package for the, for the ostensible sake of becoming covenant members. So uh, Galatians is Paul's... Um, he's doing damage control, essentially. He's trying to put out the fire that's already started. But, but by comparison, the book, of the book of Romans is written prior to Paul's visit to this community. So Galatians is Paul's letter after he had visited the community, and then he's writing to them again. And Romans is written, if, I, if I'm getting my history correct, Romans is written before, prior. So in Romans, Paul can actually sit down and he takes, what, 16 chapters, and it's his, it's his, magna, it's his magnum opus, right? It is his longest, most um, systematic theological approach to all of the topics that are vital to Christian faith and Messianic faith for us today. And for that reason, 
um, works of the law in Galatians is very short, and Paul doesn't seem to have a lot of time and parchment to explain what he means behind the theology of works of law. He just kind of throws it out bluntly at them in, 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 Rome, in Galatians 2, uh, uh, 16, where we just suddenly, all of a sudden, find this phrase, ergo namu, works of law. But by comparison in Romans, since Galatians has already been written, and ostensibly, uh, uh, presumably, the uh, uh, Jerusalem Council has already taken place, where the letter has gone out to the Gentiles uh, dealing with this uh, this con this uh, problem with works of law, then the book of Romans can kind of sit down and take it a little bit more slowly. So I'm going to pick on the book of Romans tonight, and I'm going to read, and then I'll stop and I'll explain when we get to the, the, the particular phrases that I want to interject um, my um, theology, my hermeneutic. And we'll keep reading, and we'll see, a, a basic. I'm going to exegete Romans 2 for us right here in the live class. And I'll I if I... If I have enough time, I'll do Romans 2 and 3 because they kind of fit together. And then next week, if we have time, I'll do the same for Galatians 2 and 3. And we'll see how this phrase, works of law, kind of fits in with, it's better to understand works of law in two aspects. I'll say this first and then I'll jump straight into the passage for you. When Paul writes works of the law, he has two audiences in view. He has the Gentile audience, the Gentile readers, those who are going to be reading his letters, who are Gentiles, those who have not yet, per se, undergone, gone under the knife, they have not yet converted, they've not yet gone through the proselyte package yet. And then he also has Jewish people in, in mind who have been circumcised from birth. So he's talking to two people groups, two sociological groups. So the phrase works of law has to necessarily contextually fit with the application of the people groups. So here's what I mean. For a Jew who is already circumcised, well then the phrase works of the law is going to center primarily and focus primarily on the obedience to Torah side of the coin. Meaning, Paul can't do anything about stopping Jews from being circumcised who were circumcised when they were eight-day-old baby boys, right? Nothing he can do about that. Paul warning them not to become circumcised is going to fall on deaf ears, is my point. So all Paul can do is talk about this phrase, works of the law, from the perspective of the, um, the way the Judaisms of his day were using the phrase, works of law, to describe maintenance of existing covenant membership that was gained supposedly by becoming a Jew when you were born, by being born Jewish. So the entry point into the covenant for a, a Jew supposedly took place on an everlasting level, supposedly took place when you were born a Jew. In reality, you were born into the limited covenant aspect, but I don't want to get too far into that just now. So for Paul, works of the law for a Jew is going to primarily deal with the maintenance side. So primarily, Paul's going to be discussing keeping Torah for the supposed maintenance benefits that it supplies a Jew. But for a Gentile, when Paul uses the phrase works of law, same phrase, for a Jew, I'm sorry, for a Gentile who has not yet undergone proselyte conversion, and they're, and they're entertaining this idea, they're, they're Jew shopping, as it were, they're, 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 they're considering the, the idea of becoming a Jew, by undertaking the conversion that we just read about in the Talmud, for them, the phrase works of the law is going to start with the Jewish identity and then continue with the maintenance of that membership 
by keeping Torah. So what I'm trying to say is that works of the law is best understood as a two-sided coin. One of the sides describes the membership into or uh, membership into the. I'm sorry, describes describes um, getting into the covenant or uh, entry point, and the other side of the flip side of the coin describes maintenance of staying in. So getting in is one side, staying in is the other side. This is language that is developed by uh, a Christian author, James D. D. G. Dunn. Uh, getting in, staying in. Or maybe it was E.P. Sanders who used the getting and staying in language. I think it was Sanders. But nevertheless, let's read through Romans 2, see how far I can get down through this. I don't want to rush it, but I don't want to belabor the point. Because I think most of you who are following along my commentary are starting to get this notion that when Paul says works of the law, uh, and for instance, just real quick, let me jump back over to the, the Galatians 3. Uh, notice, for those of you in my life class, I've got Galatians 3 pulled up. Notice that... Um, Notice in verse 2 that Paul says right here, let me ask you only this, did you receive, and this word receive is in the, um, let's look at the Greek here because I'm trying to remember what part of speech, uh, did you receive, uh, alabete is in the aorist indicative, active, right? Aorist tense in Greek is, um, it can be rendered in the past, kind of like the past tense of our English, but it's not particularly in the past. Um, it's not always in the past, but in, ter in terms of time, uh, when the verb is in the indicative, uh, the mood is in the indicative, then what we end up with is a, um, a verb that is aorist indicative is definitely basically something that happened in the past, a point at time in the past. And so basically Paul's saying, um, did you receive? So when I jump back over into the English, did you receive? Notice Paul says in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit? Speaking to a group of people, like a congregation in Galatia. Did you receive the Spirit, past tense, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now notice Paul is already acknowledging that the Spirit, right, has already been poured out to this group. Isn't that interesting? Past tense, did you receive? So in, in in relevance towards works of the law, if works of the law supposedly means what the church says it means, which is keeping the Torah, here's my question for your average pastor who says that works of the law simply means keeping the Torah. Which commandment is it that will draw the Spirit to you as you keep it? You get my point? According to the rabbis, there are 613 commandments. And anyone who reads to the Torah will instantly realize that not all of the 613 apply to every single person. Because some of the commandments are written to males, some to females, some to kings, some to priests, etc., etc. So, if no one can keep all 613, because not all 613 apply to every single individual, then when Paul says, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, receive being in the past tense, then... Which work of the law, I'm purposely dropping it down into the singular for a moment, ergon namu, not ergon namu. Which work of the law did God decide to send you his spirit that you kept? Was it when you kept the Sabbath, which according to the church is a work of the law? Did you keep the Sabbath and then God sent his spirit? Or did you get circumcised, which is one of the commandments of the Torah, and then God sent his spirit? I'm speaking in jest, you understand? Because this is the this is the logical fallacy of supposing that works of the law means 
keeping the commandments. Because here's my point. At one po at what point in time, if works of law means keeping the commandments, at one point in time did God recognize that you have reached some sort of um, conclusion in your keeping the Torah that he sent you his spirit? So you see, it can't be something that is done in a one-time event such as trusting and like 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 Paul says about Yeshua in Romans 10 9 and 10 that if thou shalt believe with thine heart the Lord Jesus and that shalt confess in my mouth with thy mouth that God hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and war and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation this Romans 10 9 and 10 through the KJV if I'm if I have it memorized correctly so notice those the events the verbs that Paul describes in my Romans passages if you will believe with your heart that God raised them from the dead and shall uh, confess with them I'm sorry believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and shall confess with thy mouth those are things that you can do fairly quickly confess with your mouth thou shalt be saved for with the heart so the point is salvation is generally described as a fairly quick event it shouldn't be something that should take years to complete salvation is generally speaking a monergistic work that happens uh, from God's perspective and it's a fairly quick event in other words God declares you righteous he brings the gavel down and it's a fairly fairly instantaneous event is my point shouldn't be something that takes years to confess you don't usually hear people saying Throughout the course of a year, I, I gradually became saved. Most people say, I went to church unsaved, and then I went up to the altar and made a confession, and I left the church service that day saved. So, And they're accurate. They're right. that's, that's fairly accurate. So here's my point. Paul is going to describe giving the Spirit in uh, Galatians chapter two, verse, Galatians 3, verse 2, as something that happened fairly quickly, using the, the uh, aorist indicative uh, verb tense, for the phrase uh, apatite, which is uh, receive. Did you receive? Past tense, uh, uh, aorist indicative. And yet, if it was done by the works of the law, then which commandment did they keep that drew the Spirit into them as a community? And here's my point. Because the Torah can't be kept completely in one setting, then it can't be something that the church is describing as mere commandment keeping. I instead... Imagine that the phrase works of the law here is Paul's description of the proselyte ceremony conversion, the taking on of the circumcision, the going down into the waters of the mikvah and coming up a Jew. That is something that can take place fairly quickly. In fact, by all reckoning, it, it, it could take place in as little as, say, three months or as long as a year, depending on the, uh, the, uh, the person who's going through the, 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 the initiate. And so if you could become a Jew in as short as three months, then essentially that is the work of the law that you just did. And that's something that could be fairly quickly done. And that would be something that Paul would say, hmm, did you receive the Spirit when you became a Jew? See my point? It's something that happens faster. So let's go back over to Romans 2 and see how far we can get in the uh, study. And I know I'm going a little longer, but if you'll permit me, I'm just going to uh, use up a little bit of what normally would be our Q&A time for this exegetical look at Romans chapter 2. In my um, exegesis, I'm going to actually start in the middle of the... Uh, chapter. I want to start in Romans chapter 2 and start right over here in verse 12. Um, let me get rid of that arrow because I think it's probably in the way. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12. This is um, ESV. I'm going to read a little bit and then I'll stop and explain what I read. This is Paul talking, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What does Paul introduce for uh, this particular topic? 
This phrase, all who have sinned without the law, is likely a reference to Gentiles who were not given the Torah. The word law here being namas in the Greek, and it is referring to the Torah proper, meaning the Torah that was given to the Jewish people. All who have sinned without this law in their possession, all who have sinned without the knowledge of the law, will perish without the law. But all who have sinned under the law, this phrase under the law, hupo naman, in the Greek there, is um, Paul's way of describing those who have the Torah as their lifestyle, those who have the Torah as their guideline, for blue, their blueprint for living. This would be describing the Jewish people. And then in verse 13 it says, for it is, and, and whenever Paul starts a verse with the word for, which in the um, uh, Hebrew is usually gar, I'm sorry, in the Greek is usually gar, it, the for is usually an explanation of what he just said. It's like I'm, it's like it would be like me saying, "I'm eating pizza tonight for I was very hungry." And the four points back to the the fact that um, uh, I'm eating pizza. In other words, it links the two statements together. I'm eating pizza for I am hungry. Um, that's what the four is usually referring to. So um, it's the cause. Yes, my students in the class now are are, are telling me yes, it's the cause. Uh, absolutely, you're right. It is the cause. For it is not the hearers, because uh, it's not the hearers of law who are righteous before God, but the doers of law who will be justified. Now, I'm going very quickly, so you have to stay with me here. Notice Paul says it's the hearers of law who are righteous before God. Now, there are two levels of righteousness that are being described in the Bible. One level of righteousness is what we might call behavioral righteousness. It is the righteousness that we know to be right-living. And this is basically what we might describe as the right thing to do. It is basically doing good, seeking justice, doing right, following the Torah. It is temporal righteousness that is accredited to you. It is merit from God's perspective. It is, a, it is granted to you because you do the right thing. And you don't even really even have to believe in God to do the right thing. There are many well-meaning, upright, upstanding, moral people uh, in the earth today who don't believe in God, but they do the right thing because it is the right thing to do. That's, that is a form of righteousness that God recognizes, right? That is, that is righteousness. And that's what I believe Paul is essentially describing right here when he says, it's not the hearers of law who are, we could insert the word morally righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law, law who will be morally justified. We know this has to be the case because otherwise Paul's saying that if, if righteousness here is forensic, read here as salvation, then we would have Paul basically teaching that those who do the Torah are saved. We'd have Paul saying, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous forensically before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified forensically. In other words, we would have Paul saying that the doers of the law who will be saved. And we know that can't be the case, because Paul says in Galatians 2, 16, that it's not by works of the law that anyone is justified or made righteous. So we know this must be talking about a moral righteousness that is... Um, that is conferred upon man as he walks into the law. Let's keep going. Um, verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, notice, verse 14, Gentiles who do not have the law, is parallel to those who have sinned without the law. This phrase, without the law, in verse 12, is parallel to do not have the law in verse 14. So that's how I, we know it's Gentiles. For Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. And he's still describing this moral requirement of the law. They are a law to themselves, meaning 
that their, their relationship as Gentiles, even though they don't have the written law, there is a moral law that is actually written on the conscience of all men. And therefore, even without the written law, they can still do good, is all what uh, Paul is trying to say. That's what he means when he says there's a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, meaning they don't have the, the, the benefit of, of being raised in a Torah community like most Jewish people would. And then let's keep going, verse 15. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm working my way exegetically towards Paul's phrase, um, works of the law, which is going to show up here in this passage, right? So let's just keep reading. Um, verse 15, they, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, meaning the moral parts of the law, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, or the gospel as I preach it, God judges the secrets of men, or all men, the Greek, the Greek word for men there would probably be something like, um, oh, what's the Greek word for mankind? I, I'm drawing a blank off the top of my head. But, but basically it's man, not Jews, by Christ Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew. Now notice at this point, Paul's going to shift his emphasis from the Gentile readers of his letter to the Jewish readers. But if you call yourself a Jew, or if you have taken on Jewish identity, or if you identify yourself as a Jew, either by birth or by proselyte, that's what I mean when he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. Now notice Paul says rely on the law. This is going to be our first hint at the social function that the law played in Paul's day. You rely on the law and boast in God. Later on, Paul's going to say you actually boast in the law as well. But notice that they rely on the law. Rely on the law for what? Rely on the law for what? We're going to let him just keep reading. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 18. And know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Notice Paul is describing for the Jewish people that the law gives the benefit of giving the moral instruction as well as what is approvable and excellent. Paul says that again in Romans uh, 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, you are instructed from the law. Verse 19, and, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, who would the blind be? Well, the blind would be either those unfortunate Jews who were who were not very learned and didn't have a chance to either study Torah or perhaps lived in outlying areas where there were no synagogues and they weren't able to attend, and therefore they were they were kind of um, backwoods Jews who didn't have a chance to to be very um, versed in Torah and what what law requires, and therefore they would be called the the blind. Also, in Paul's day, the blind would be those Gentiles who were seeking righteousness. And they would actually go ask the Jewish people, how do I know what's the right thing to do? How can I learn how to live a right life? How can I become a better person? And the, uh, the Jews would uh, consider these Gentiles as basically the blind. And therefore, the Jewish people felt it was their privilege and their responsibility to teach the blind. That's what Paul says. Right, so verse 18 says, you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law, notice Paul's centering the Jewish person's identity back in the law again. Paul's basically not really, con he's not really bad-mouthing the Jewish people, or he's not really slapping them on the wrist for being in this position, but he's trying to get them to understand that if they take and misuse their position as Jews who possess the law, and they misuse their position as covenant, natural covenant members, then they're going to end up in hot water with God. So that's where Paul's going with his teaching. 
uh, verse 20, uh, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth. Then you who teach others, verse 21, do you not teach yourself? Now Paul's going to start exposing the hypocrisy of a Jew who says, I've got the Torah, and I'm a Jew, and I'm not a fool, I'm not a blind, I'm not a babe, and I'm not in darkness, therefore I'm wise, and I can instruct those people. But secretly this person breaks Torah. This person is a hypocrite. Right? Paul's going to start leveling his, 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 um, his dialogue at this person. Look at verse 21. Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Verse 22. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And then look at verse 23. This is very interesting. You who boast in the law. Boast in the law. Boast in the law. In what way? The law in Paul's day had become a social prize. A prize of the community to be, to be treasured as something to be possessed to the exclusion of the Gentiles who were not Jews. That's the point I'm trying to make. Paul's working towards and working with the understanding in his day that the Jewish people held on to the Torah as if it were something that should not be shared with those who were not ethnically Jewish. And therefore, if someone on the outside of the group wanted to keep the Torah, wanted access to the Torah, wanted to be able to receive the, the benefit, the reward that Torah spells out, then those on the outside had to go through the proselyte ceremony Remember, we read about it there in the Talmud. They had to go through the, uh, the mikvah waters. They had to become circumcised, then go through the mikvah waters and come up as a Jew, come out of the waters as a Jew. They were basically born again. That is a Jewish phrase from, from Paul's day. They were born again, and their new birth is Jewish. Understand? So it is this social religious um, meaning that was assigned to the Torah and assigned to the phrase circumcision because of its implication of Jewish identity, that Paul begins to work with this term works of the law, which for a Jew described primarily his Jewish identity, which led to his maintenance of membership, right? Just because you became a Jewish member, just because you came up out of the mikvah waters, doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be a good standing Jew, right? After you came up out of the ceremony, that's why the rabbis told you about the, the, uh, um, the punishments. Because now, if you violate the Torah, you have no excuse, as Paul even just mentioned here in Romans chapter 2. You have no excuse because you now have knowledge of what is right, and what is wrong? Your eyes have been opened, and therefore you are culpable. You are responsible for that which you've been given. What, is, uh, what does the Bible say? To whom much is given, much is required. And so, as I close tonight's study, and we'll pick this up next week, basically Paul is going to start working towards this phrase, works of the law. And it's going to show up, I'll just jump over to Romans 3 for you, those of you who are in the live class. Pull up my little pointer. Um, you'll see that, um, let me scroll down a bit. Look at Romans 3.20. I'll leave you with this teaser. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified 
Anthropos is the Greek word I was looking for earlier. Anthropos is man or human being. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified as in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this whole paragraph here that I'm highlighting, Romans 3.20, the context is developed from what I'm reading now in Romans 2, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And that's why I'm starting back here. And so next week, as I close, uh, I'm going to... Um, We'll pick up the reading through our commentary again. We'll start in um, page 19 in our uh, section 3 of works of law with our paragraph here with regards to our text here in Galatians. We'll start there. And then we'll uh, once again turn to Romans 2. And we'll start working our way contextually towards one of Paul's first uses of the phrase works of law in this book to Romans, which is going to help us understand how he used it in the book of Galatians. Understand? So... Um, for those of you, I'm, I'm having some of the students in my live class tell me that they might be having audio problems or internet problems. Uh, I'm going to upload, upload the audio class, the audio portions, as soon as I can, after I edit them, add the, uh, the, the, the music intro and outro and edit out any coughs and, and, and burps and anything like that. Um, I'll upload the audio within 24 hours after this live broadcast. So if you if there were parts of the internet that chopped out on you, or the audio was choppy, or things like that, well then um, go through, uh, go, go back, uh, watch for the email where I mentioned um, the audio link is available and then you can click and listen to the entire class, okay? So I apologize for those who uh, are having internet issues or uh, audio problems. Um, so let me go ahead and dismiss in prayer and then um, for those of you who are in the live class, I've got about 15 minutes left, and I'll stay with you, and we can entertain some, some questions and answers. Um, uh, okay, so let's close in prayer, and then we'll just uh, pick this up uh, beginning next week. Lord, I bless you tonight for all of the um, all of the material that we're able to cover. Father, I, I, I feel sometimes like we're going fast, and other times I feel like we're going slow. And so, Father, forgive me. It's my own frustration as a teacher. I, I so much want to convey... Uh, everything that I've uh, been studying with the teach with the students, and yet at the same time, I know that Lord, it is Your Holy Spirit that is going to um, imprint the the words in their heart and help them to begin to practically apply it. And so, Father, I ask for forgiveness for trying to play Your role, uh, for trying to super uh, for trying to um, superintend the learning. Father, I know that the Holy Spirit is the superintendent of the text, and so I yield to him, and I uh, commit this time to him. Uh, Yeshua, I thank you for being with us, and I thank you that you have uh, preserved the words of the text so that we can go back and study it, because it is to our benefit. Lord, we want to press in. We want to be close. We want to um, continue to avail ourselves of your truth, because it is in your words and in your ways that we will find the blessing. It is by um, letting the word wash through us that we will continue to turn away from sin and continue to uh, continue to press in in a right relationship with you. So thank you for all that you're doing for us and through us in this community. Bring us back next week, supercharged and refreshed and ready to take on another chapter in exegeting Galatians. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all these things, Bishop Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>